pretty good sign that you have wandered off into the high end of cable channels or onto a early, early middle of the night program produced by some religious organization is a pastor standing in front of a flip chart. And to thoroughly convince you that things have gone off the rails, when that pastor puts up on the flip chart a genealogy, you're pretty convinced that you're in for some strange and wacky presentation of religion. Well, here we are. We've been in the book of Genesis for the past several weeks now, going through each of the story of the patriarchs with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whose name became Israel. And today's story is about the 12 brothers and Joseph. Actually, Benjamin has not been born yet, and so it starts with the 11 brothers counting Joseph and Joseph's uh, multicolored coat, uh, which may be a mistranslation. In reality, it was probably a coat with very long sleeves that went all the way down to the ground. Uh, there's a history as to why it was translated as a multicolored coat, but with apologies to Andrew Lloyd Webber, um, it was probably a coat that was so flowing that it made Joseph completely inefficient in herding the sheep, which is one of the reasons why his brothers resented the fact that his father presented him with a garment that meant he didn't have to work anymore. Uh, isn't that just like little brothers are? So today I am standing here with a genealogy of Abraham and relationships that go through it all down the chart. If you remember back to our story of Abraham and Sarah, uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, was the one who was also given the promise that they would be children of a great, their children would be a great nation. Abraham, as you recall, tried to preempt that relationship by having a child with Hagar, and that was Ishmael uh, with Hagar, who was Sarah's servant, and Ishmael was blessed by God with many sons as well. In fact, Ishmael too in the scriptures had 12 sons, not unlike Jacob who has 12 sons. So Ishmael ends up having his own children and nation, but that is not the one that we follow in the promise to Abraham. We follow the promise with Abraham and Sarah, and they of course have Isaac. Isaac was the son that Abraham attempted to, to sacrifice because he believed that's where God had taken him. And at the last moment, the sacrifice is called off and they sacrifice a ram that is found in the thicket. And then we go from Isaac, who had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau were the twins. Esau was the one that came out first. He reached out. They put a ribbon on his arm. Then Jacob was born, and Esau was declared the elder because he was the first one uh, to project himself out of the womb when they were born together. And then Jacob ends up conning Esau out of his birthright, and he then has to run away because Esau is extremely upset with him. And that's kind of where we left Jacob and Esau most recently. Uh, except last Sunday in the Hebrew scripture story was the story of Jacob had worked for 21 years first hoping that he would be able to marry Rachel 
whom he found attractive and loved. But Laban, his father-in-law, performed uh, a switcheroo at the wedding, and Leah was in a veil. And so when Jacob awakens after the wedding night and kind of sobers up, he realized that Laban has given him the wrong sister. That was after seven years of working for Laban. And so he works another seven years in order to get Rachel, the woman he truly loved, and then another seven years to be able to get capital, to be able to get uh, uh, livestock, to be able to return back home to claim his birthright that he had stolen from Esau. And it is when he is returning home that you have the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel. And in the morning, he grabs him and says, give me a sign. And the angel reaches and dislocates his hip and says, from now on, you will be known as Israel. No longer Jacob, Jacob meaning Jacob, meaning the grabber. Now you will be Israel, the one who wrestles with God. And so his encounter with God resulted in a change of his name and a permanent limp. He then gets up the next morning with all of his cattle and with all of his servants and with all of his wealth and decides that Esau, his brother, is probably still quite angry with him. And so when he goes and sees Esau as he crosses the river, he bows down before Esau and presents him copious gifts, hoping that his brother would be placated by his generosity. But instead, Esau says in one of the most beautiful verses of the Bible, don't worry about it. I've got enough. I've got enough. Embraced, they held to one another, and they settled in the land. Now, we jump forward to the children that Jacob had with Leah, his first wife, and the child that he had with Rebekah, his second wife. Now, why am I talking about the lineage of these matriarchs and patriarchs throughout the Bible? Now, here's the tradition. The tradition was that the oldest son would inherit the estate, that the name, the wealth, and the land would go forward in each successive generation through the bloodline of the eldest son. Well... Abraham's eldest son was Ishmael. Uh, never mind that it was from a servant of Sarah. In terms of inheritance law, the eldest son would have had the birthright and inherited. But the inheritance does not go to the eldest son, as per tradition. It goes to the second son, who was Isaac. Likewise, Isaac's estate inherited from his father Abraham, should have gone to the eldest son, who was Esau. But Jacob and Esau ended up with that deal over a bowl of porridge. And so Jacob, the younger son, ends up with the birthright. Uh, Jacob, who becomes Israel, the one who wrestles with God, has children by Leah and by Leah's servant, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishakar, Zebulun, and with the servant Gad and Asher, and with Rachel, 
he has Joseph and Benjamin. Now, Joseph has two other uh, sons of his own, Manasseh and Ephraim. Those names become important when the tribes are established with Joshua, when they re-enter the land after their exile here in Egypt. But the eldest son of all of the children was Reuben. The lineage and the estate should have gone forward, according to tradition, with Reuben. But in reality, and according to the passages that begin in Genesis 25 and go forward from there, Judah, the fourth son, is the one who receives the birthright inheritance from his father Israel. So we have the generations, one after another after another, that violate the tradition. There is in none of these matriarch and patriarch lineage statements a single case where tradition is followed. Where does that take us? What does that mean? Now, when a preacher puts a genealogy up on a flip chart, clearly he's got something in mind, and he is going to show you interrelationships between these connections that lead us to understanding something as extremely important as something as extremely important as the fact that we are really, really bad at predicting God's choice. Our epistle lesson for the day comes to us from the 10th chapter of the book of Romans. And the Apostle Paul says that those who are descendants of Abraham, the descendants of the law of Moses, consider themselves chosen and beholden to the law of Moses. But those who are in lineage as children of God through Jesus Christ are in connection with Christ by his grace. That there is nothing in us genealogically, historically, physically, geographically, that somehow makes us God's children. We are God's children by Christ's choice. Much of the energy that ministers spend is to try and help you discern where God might be working. Consult tradition. Well, it doesn't apply here. Consult expectation. It doesn't apply here. And nor does it apply in the world in which we live. God calls whom God calls. God chooses whom God chooses and is not constrained by tradition, by blood, by heritage. That includes also in the things that happen to us as we try and figure out and predict where is the next place that God wants us to be. Very, very seldom does it turn out to be a linear march from where we are to where we think we should go. More often than not, it is God's simple plan unfolding story after story after story. In our gospel lesson today, we have Jesus, who finally, after feeding the 5,000, has had a little time alone, and he sends the disciples off ahead of him on the boat, and he remains at the shore 
finally getting that me time that Chris Hine said he probably wanted so much at the beginning of last Sunday's gospel lesson. But he was moved with compassion, and so he acted to be able to heal and to teach and to feed the people who had come to follow him. Now, finally alone, the disciples in the boat, uh, Jesus has taken some time for himself. And while the disciples are in the boat, they see off in the distance walking across the water, none other than Jesus. They're frightened. Clearly walking on water was not something that they thought the Messiah would do. But in their fear, they call out, thinking perhaps this is an apparition or a ghost. And Jesus responds, it is I. Peter says, if it's you, then call me out and I will walk on the water with you. Jesus says to Peter, come on in. The water's good. And Peter does. He successfully begins to walk on the water right towards Jesus. That is until the waves and the wind begin to distract him. And then he loses his focus on Jesus and he begins to sink. Jesus, of course, grabs him, pulls him up into the boat, and makes sure that he is safe. How is it that Peter knew he was called? He was the one who said, ask me, invite me out, and I will step into the water. It is interesting that it's Peter, but it could have been any one of the disciples. Now, is walking on water a thing? I don't know. But the story is clear, that when Peter lost his focus on Christ, he began to be overwhelmed by the wind and the rain and the waves. I know many of us are experiencing what feels like storms in our lives. The winds that blow around us, that confront us, and sting our face, and reduce our confidence. Keeping our eyes on Christ, the one who has called us to come to him, suddenly causes all the wind and the rain and the billows and the troubles and the pains and the fears to dissipate. But the good news of this story is this, that even when we lose focus and faith, Christ is there to hold us up and keep us safe and bring us home. It is, as the Apostle Paul points out, through Christ that we become Christ's children, not by birth of lineage or family heritage, but by the sheer choice of Christ to come to us. God calls whom God calls, and that includes you. But through Christ, God calls us to walk towards Christ undistracted 
by the winds and troubles and dangers of this world and to trust Christ to grab us and hold us safe. When we lose sight of that, we feel as if we are sinking. And we cry out because we fear we may have been forgotten. But we are not. The Christ who called us will sustain us. The Christ who sustains us will bring us safely home. Moved with compassion, Jesus healed and taught the people and fed the 5,000. And moved with compassion, Christ reaches to you.